0: Well, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Zach, one of the pastors here, and I'm really excited to get into the word with you guys. And so um, if you will turn to Hebrews chapter four, Hebrews chapter four, if you will turn there. All right. You guys doing all right? You don't sound all right, though. Like, that's the thing. Are you doing okay? Okay. Yeah? Well, so you don't have to be doing okay, but you have to be stoked to be in the Word of God. You have to be stoked to be in His house, right? You guys get to worship Him this evening. So, how is everyone doing today? Yeah? All right. Okay. Okay. We'll see. We'll see. All right. Hebrews chapter 4. If you need a Bible, raise your hand nice and high. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and Zach and Bailey will get you some Bibles. Keep them raised. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 is where we will be. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14. Awesome. Hebrews chapter 4 I should probably turn there too. Huh. It's probably smart. <clears throat> Keep your hands raised if you need a Bible. Hebrews chapter 4. And once you are there, please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Won't be up there long. I have three verses. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is God's word. Are you ready? Mm, All right, we'll see if you're ready. Lord, we are so excited to be in your presence. And Jesus, it is by your blood that we are able to enter into it. And so, Father, I pray that you would uh, draw us near to yourself, Jesus. God, that in this time, it would be more of holding fast to you, the steadfast anchor for our souls. Redeem us, Lord. And God, redeem the time. We seek you and seek your knowledge. And God to see, we seek to draw closer to you, Jesus. So work in us, God. We love you. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Have a seat. Have a seat. <coughs> so we are going through a series, as, as most of you know, some of you, most of you have been here for the duration of the series. We're going through a series, and it's called Anchored. And, and not only because anchors are super trendy, but also because anchor is a, is a key theme in the book of Hebrews. And that's what we've been doing. We've been going through different parts of the book of Hebrews. And we've been learning that Jesus Christ is this, what we call the steadfast anchor for our souls. Essentially, what we've been learning is that uh, the storms of life, they rage because, you know, we, we honestly, we have no clue how to navigate this world. We have no clue how to navigate the waters that we call life. And, and oftentimes the storms are too heavy for us. And the, and the Bible equates us to sojourners. The Bible equates us to, to ships that are that are at sea seeking paradise, seeking the safe shores, but unable to get there. And we learned that, uh, that back in Israel, what, what the coasts of Israel would have is that they would have these huge rocks that were on the shores, and they called them anchors. These These rocks were incredibly large. And the sailboats that would come in and try to find safe haven in the harbors would not be able to get there because the wind was too strong and the waves were too large. So what they would do is that they would send a forerunner, a smaller boat on their behalf to have a rope and a chain and attach it to the anchor. And we learn that Jesus Christ is the anchor and the forerunner for our souls, that he is the one who has, who has gone and endured the storms and endured the trials in life so that we might hold fast to him to reach paradise. And we learn, and, and, and essentially what this entire series is about, is about the classic Christian practices, like reading the Word of God, praying, worship, and being in community all of these things that we do but listen if if you've ever grown up in church uh, there there's this weird paradigm that happens or there there's this weird thing that happens in the hearts of people that have grown up in church and i and i could tell i could tell you this because i'm i'm a youth leader i'm a youth pastor and so i've noticed this especially in the kids that have grown up in church is that they have the practice of Christianity down they have nailed it Right? And some of you, you got that. You are so good at Jesus. (laughs) Like, you are so good at church. You have nailed that down. You know how. But oftentimes, I've discovered that people don't know why. There's, there's the how to pray. There's the, there's the, the practice of prayer. There's the practice of getting in the Word. There's the practice of, of worshiping with music. There's the practice of going to church and getting in community. But why? And that's what this series is about. It's going into the deeper why. And we're learning that all the essential practices of Christianity, like reading your Bible, like praying, like worshiping, like getting in community, these are all simply the fact of us holding on to the anchor, holding on to the forerunner, Jesus. That all of these practices, they're not just, they're not practices we do out of some sort of religiosity. They're not practices that we do to to reach some sort of piety or holiness. It is It is a practice that is essential in holding on to our Savior Jesus and growing in a deeper relationship with him. And so last week we learned about being anchored in the word of God. We learned that the word of God, it's it's not necessarily us endeavoring to read the Bible, but it's us allowing the Bible to read us. It's not us getting in the word and out of some religious practice, trying to get God to be pleased with us by memorizing verses and getting that little star on our badge on Sunday school. That's not what reading the Bible is about. What the Bible is about is allowing it to cut through our hearts and define our lifestyle, not justify our lifestyle. Because you'll see that there's, there's a couple different ways that people view the Bible. They view it as maybe a tool to justify their, uh, their bigotry. They'll use it as a tool to justify their lifestyle that they're doing. So they're like, okay, where in the Bible does it say I could do this with my girlfriend or boyfriend? Where in the Bible does it say that I'm allowed to hate this person? And we see entire denominations and entire religions based off that, don't we? But we we learn that rather the it, it is essential that we read the word in order for it to, to define our lifestyle to cut through all the crap to get to get past the facade of, of fake religiosity and allow us to come into this contact with our Lord and Savior discover who His character is so that we might mimic that character for the sake of saving this world and redeeming it and 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 so now we are going to be going into being anchored in prayer. Now, I'm going to be 100% honest with you, because this is church. This is where we ought to be honest, right? I'm going to be 100% honest with you in saying that prayer as a concept, as, as a theological concept, dumbfounds me. I've often said on the pulpit that I, 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 can, I read the Word of God right to left. I, I, I love soaking it up, spending hours and hours in it. But when it comes to prayer, it is the hardest thing for me. To grasp it is the hardest practice for me and some of you might be the same way because you're like me you can't keep a solid thought in your head for more than like five minutes right Some of you are like me where, where it's, it's just you want to get down, you want it you want to sit down and you want to pray to God for like hours right. But you can't, right? Because then you just start thinking about work or you start thinking about school or you start thinking about Netflix, right? You just start thinking about all of these things, right? You, you could, you could start just so incredibly just in this euphoric, this holy state and just totally enraptured by the presence of God. And then like someone honks their horn outside and you're just, it's all messed up, right? It is all jacked up. That's me, right? Just being honest with you. Maybe you're better than I am, but that's me, right? I, and and and, and, here's, and here's the thing, as I was studying prayer in order to articulate it and teach it, because here, here's here's also how I operate. I like taking you know i't like I, like I don't like going so deep that I can't even explain myself. you know what I mean i don't like going so deep in the word that that the words that I speak don't even make sense. you know what I mean Have you ever talked to those people that know the Bible so well that it's almost like they don't even know what they're saying. You know what I mean? You're, you're, you're talking to them, and it's like these words that you're using. That's not even English, right? And, and, and so I, I like taking really complex things in the Bible, and I like simplifying. It. I like dumbing it down to my own IQ, right? Uh, that's, that's what I like to do for myself. But you see, the concept of prayer is so thick that I had a really hard time looking at every aspect of it. It's so multidimensional. And it's impossible for me in a, a time span of, of 35 to 40 minutes to explain to you the entirety of prayer. And that's why, you know, and in, in here, here's in all honesty, Pastor Mark and I recognize something. And I, as a communication major, recognize something to you. I recognize something that, and th- I know this about my own brain, and I know this about all of your brains, that you'll probably only remember about 10% of what I say up here. And that's just a fact. We we only remember about ten percent of what we of what we listen to orally. And you know this if you've been in school for like five minutes, right? You know this fact. You know where you start. How many of you start off the school year just you you you're so stoked like you got your notes, you got your pen, you just you, you take notes upon notes upon notes, and then you see as as kind of the lecture goes on, you know a little more doodles, right? <laughs> right? You check your Instagram a couple more times, right? We 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 start to fade away. But here's The thing. We also recognize that the only thing we really want to get across on the pulpit is this. You're not going to remember all my five step points. You're not going to remember every single point that I, that I preached to you guys. But if I can articulate to you guys a love and a desire to seek Jesus in certain ways, I've done my job. So, I mean, you're not going to remember everything that I explained to you guys last week on the word of God and its importance and the depths of why it's important. But I hope that you've been inspired to read it a little more, right? Dive deeper. And so in prayer, I'm not going to be able to articulate every single point of prayer to you, nor are you going to remember it, nor am I going to remember it. (laughs) But man, I'm going to be inspired to get in my closet more with the Lord. Amen? And, here's, and here's, here are my questions when it comes to prayer. Here's why it's so difficult for me. Here's, here's why it's so hard for me to grasp prayer. Is that I, I have these questions of like, what does prayer accomplish? Right? What, what does prayer even, what does it even do? Because I think I'm praying to an almighty all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign Lord. I, that's who I'm praying to. And if I'm praying and requesting something of him that is good, then isn't he going to do it anyways? Like, wh- what, what is the point of me praying to a God who already has everything ordained, right? What is the point of me praying to a God, asking him to do something, if he already has the entirety of history planned out? So, so this, this is the hard concept for me when it comes to prayer. What is in it for me and what is in it for God? Why? Why do I pray? What, what is the point of it all? Does God really answer when I beckon him? Isn't he too powerful and all-knowing to answer my dumb requests? And sometimes what, these are the honest questions I think about. Maybe you don't have these questions, but these are certainly questions that pop up in my mind when I, when I sit down to pray to the Lord. Because the Bible explains it as prayer as a give and take relationship, and there's practical effects to it. I don't, but I don't always see the practical effects of of praying. I can see the practical effects of reading the Word, as in I gain wisdom, I gain understanding, I'm able to teach. I see the practical effects of corporate worship. I see that it's able to unify the body of Christ, and that the Lord is pleased when we offer up songs to Him. Right. He's not pleased when we sit there kind of like mumbling the words, but he's pleased when we're, when we're offering praises to him. I can see the importance of community in a sense of being sharpened by other believers and being in an account, an accountability with other believers. But when it comes to prayer, I'm like, what is the practical effects of this? And this is something that I'm in constant struggle with, but God is continually showing me as I pray. I hear people, and I don't know if you're, if you're like this, you know comparing yourself to other people i know you don't do that but i do that right i compare myself to other people all the time and when i hear about these people that pray nonstop for healing and miracles i hear people that are every you know every morning they wake up at 4am Right, and they're on their knees, and you know you hear those really cheesy but awesome stories about the men that where where there's dents on the side of their bed where their knees are always on you know in in the morning, right? And, you know they're always praying, and they hear people interceding for hours and hours, and people praying over people for hours, and people that are able to keep a conversation with God for four or five hours at a time. I hear these stories about these people, and I realize that's just not me. I'm a pastor. That's not me. I'm not someone who's on his knees for four to five hours each day. I can't can't do anything for four to five hours, (laughs) maybe besides sleep. And even that's hard sometimes, right? And so that begs the question in my heart, am I not close to God? Am I not as close to God as these people? Is there, is, there, is there something wrong with me? In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, he says this, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holy, uh, holiest by the blood of Jesus, let us enter boldly into his presence. And, I think about this there's an awesome Oswald Chambers quote. I don't know if any of you guys know who Oswald Chambers is. He's a, he's a great theologian that lived around World War 1 and he said this. He said this about prayer. Okay. He said this about in commentary of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, which is therefore brethren having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Also what he said in Hebrews chapter four, where it says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to the help in time of need. This boldness to enter into the presence of God, which is essential in prayer. And Oswald Chambers says this, listen, it is not our earnestness that brings us in touch with God, nor our devotion nor our times of prayer but our lord jesus christ vitalizing death our times of prayer are evidences of reaction on the reality of redemption so we have confidence and boldness to access into the holiest what an unspeakable joy it is to know that we each have the right to approach to god in confidence Colossians uh, chapter one, verse 21 says this, And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by your wicked works, yet he now has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. You and I once existed as, and, 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 and I, I, we, Pastor Mark and I, we really love to emphasize that there's no neutrality with God. There's no on the fence with God that that doesn't exist biblically. And in, in God's perspective, there's no one who's like, yeah, maybe I'm kind of for God. You know, I, I believe in him. There's, there's no such thing. There's enemies of God and there are children of God. There's only two categories. And it says that you who are once enemies of God, alienated from his presence, that Christ has brought us from that alienation with God, from being enemies of God. And he's brought us in to his life by the blood of Jesus, that Christ has said, okay, everything that once held you down and separated you from me, all unholiness that has ever been in you, I will take that upon myself and I will nail it to the cross and I will kill it on the cross and I will rise again on the third day, proving that you all your baggage and all the sin will remain in the ground, but I may live. So if you believe in me, you, you will have everlasting life as well. This is the essential in the gospel. And it's Christ's righteousness, guys. It is Christ's righteousness. Him saying that I'm going to take all of your baggage and then I'm going to give you my righteousness. I love the example of that we get to take off our clothes that are filthy and dirty with wickedness. And that we get to put on the robes of righteousness so that we might enter into the house of God. This is what Jesus Christ has done for us. And it's Christ's righteousness that allows us to enter into God's presence in prayer. Guys, that is crazy. It is insanity that we are able to do that. That we are able to enter into the presence of the holy God. In 1 John 3 verse 1, it says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. And such we are. God now sees us like he sees Jesus. Do you understand that? Do you understand that when he looks at you, when he listens to you, he listens to you and he looks at you as if he were talking to and blessing and loving Jesus. Jesus. We need to understand that when we come into God's presence. I need to understand that when I, I cannot compare myself to the people who have been in prayer for four hours at a time. You know, their, their knees are bleeding so much that they've been on their knees so much in prayer. I can't compare myself to them. My unity with God is dependent on what Christ has done for me. And that when God listens to me, no matter how short or how long my prayer may be, he listens to me as if he were listening to Jesus himself. We must understand that. That is insane. That Christ would give us that. That when you cry out to him, Abba, when you cry, Father, help me. When you cry out to him, when you pray to him, when you ask things of him, realizing that he is listening to you as if he were listening to his own son is pivotal, just pivotal. So the fact that we pray a certain way or at a certain place or whatever, that is, that's not what we rely upon. So, so, so the prayers that are prayed in church or the prayers that are prayed in a group or the prayers that are prayed alone, that is not the point. That's not what we ought to look at. Prayers prayed by uh, by a pastor, prayers prayed by a janitor, the same. We must understand that. Redemption is the platform of prayer. Redemption is the platform of prayer. Because. And I think it's really important to know that really important that it's, that it's Christ's blood that allows us to enter into this place. It's, it's Christ alone who enables us to enter into the Holy of Holies that we are able to be bold as we approach the throne room of grace. It's really important to know that because I think we tend to have this cause and effect type of mentality when it comes to prayer. We like to have a cause and effect type of mentality. I pray cause then God will bless me effect. If I pray for this, God will bless me with this because I prayed. We like to have that type of uh, cause and effect mentality, but that's, that's kind of losing the aim of prayer. That's missing the aim of prayer. Our confidence is not in the act of prayer. We need to understand this. Our confidence is not in the act of prayer. People like to say, oh, prayer works, man. Prayer works. No, God works. Prayer, prayer is, is nothing but imploring of the one who answers prayer. And so we can, we cannot deify, we cannot glorify these practices. We cannot glorify uh, the reading of scripture. We cannot glorify uh, prayer. We cannot elevate these things above the one whom we're seeking. And so when we pray, it's not the act of prayer That makes us holy. It's not the act of prayer that that makes everything happen. Just because you pray for something to happen doesn't mean it will happen, because prayer isn't this magical practice. It's all about the object of our affections, the one whom we pray to. That's what's important to realize when we pray that it's not the act of praying that has power, it's our God that we pray to that has power. We're tapping into the source. Our certainty in prayer is dependent upon our certainty in the one we pray to. And as we learned since the beginning of this series, that the practices we do as Christians are first and foremost to cling to Jesus. They're first and foremost to understand God. They're first and foremost to grow in knowledge of who he is, which will result in a life that imitates his character. So prayer is simply to grow in greater community with God. That's what it is. It's to enter boldly into his presence, grow in greater community with God. First and foremost, that is what it is. So forget about, okay, if I pray something, this will happen. Forget about this magic wand type of prayer. First and foremost, prayer is meant to unify our hearts with God's. First and foremost. Now it has many other implications as well. God heeds the prayer of his people, but we must understand that this is what it is first. Growing in intimacy with our Lord. That is why he says, "Don't even don't worry about praying in the public square. Get in a closet and pray. Intimacy with God. Get alone with Him." I would say, guys, that prayer. I don't know you may have different opinions, but I would say that prayer is the source of a Christian's humility. Prayer is the source of the Christian's humility, tapping tapping into the character of God. Pouring our heart out to him, this is the source of true humility. If you look at Psalms, if, if you look at the entire book of Psalms, especially David's Psalms, the language that David uses when he's speaking of his own sin, when he's speaking of his own actions, when he's speaking of his own desires, <coughs> the language David uses is gritty. It's messy when he talks about his own feelings when his own, in his own emotions. I really encourage you guys, if you want to grow deeper and closer to God through prayer, read the Psalms. This is what's been transforming my prayer life. But when he speaks of his own emotions and his own feelings and and his desires, it's so, so gritty and messy. But when he's talking about God's faithfulness and character, his words are filled with eloquence and worship. When you look at prayers of request all throughout Scripture, they are a prayer in accordance of what God wants, not what we want. They're prayers in accordance of God's original plan, what He desires. And so I would say the prayer is the source of a Christian's humility because prayer is forsaking our desires and replacing them with God's. But we've kind of skewed it a little bit, haven't we? We've skewed it as God is some sort of, and it's a super cheesy metaphor, but I still, I, I still think it stands true that we, we think of God as some Santa Claus, this cosmic Santa Claus where we make our wish list to him, and maybe if we're good, he'll answer. Maybe if we're bad, he won't. That is a terrible perspective of a way to look at God and to look at prayer. We must operate in a, con, in a context of drawing near to God because of what Christ has done for us. As we seek his will, as we seek to understand him in his word, as we seek to understand his will, what he desires for our lives, what he wants for us. And as we pray, prayer is us merging our desires and morphing them to look more and more like Christ's desires, more and more like God's desires. This is the practice of prayer. Ephesians 1.18 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of glory of his inheritance in the saints. So Paul says that this is the main, this is the main thing that he prays, that as we pray, our desires, our desires and our hearts may be enlightened to know what God is calling us to do, to know uh, his inheritance and the glory and the magnitude of his majesty. This is the point of prayer. Prayer above all else is to unify our desires with Christ, to help us come into this understanding of his plan, of his character, the effect prayer has on us. Guys, as we pray, the effect it will have on us Is our character moving and morphing to look more like the character of Christ? This is what it will be as we continue to seek him in prayer. We pray for what we want, yeah? This is something we do, yes? We pray for things that we want. We pray for things that we desire. And and when I pray for things that I desire... I don't know if any of you have had this. Maybe God beckons on every single call and answers everything with a yes. Absolutely. You're the best, right? Maybe some of you are like that. But with me, I'll pray something and I won't get it. I'll, I'll, I'll pray that God would change this circumstance. or I'll pray that God will bring this type of person. Or I'll pray that God will do this in my life. And he doesn't answer in the way I asked him to. This happens. We may call them unanswered prayers. God wouldn't call it that way. He would call it an unanswered prayer. He answered with, no, learn about me more. If you knew my desires, you wouldn't have asked for that. If you knew my plan for you, you wouldn't have asked for that. I love the saying that that God answers our prayers like we would answer our prayers if we knew what he knew. Right? Right? We pray for what we want, and God doesn't always meet up with those wants. He doesn't always give us what we ask for. Why? And that's found in Psalm 37, verse 4. It says, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. How many of you have heard that verse before? Delight yourself in the Lord. There's a lot of cute little pictures on Pinterest of that verse, right? Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. We interpret that as if I make sure to follow Jesus and have a positive attitude. He will give me whatever I want. Amen. Amen. I wish. However, that's not what it means. This verse means that as we grow closer to God, as we learn about him more, as we learn about what he wants, as we, as we draw closer to him, as we seek to talk to him more, commune with him, have relationship with him, and we start delighting in him and loving his correction and loving his, his word, loving his encouragement in our lives, if we begin to delight in him, he's going to take his desires and put them in our heart he's going to give us our desires. He's going to give us what we should be wanting. So when I pray, it's no longer out of of this thing where I believe I need this, Lord. I believe that I want this, Lord. It is no, God, I believe this to be true, that you want this. So make it happen according to your will. Even Jesus said that. He said, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. He, when he, when he, when he came with the model prayer and he told his disciples how to pray, pray first and foremost, he said, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. You are good. You are above your name is above my name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And so we don't pray according to our desires, our will. We pray according to his, as we delight and seek unity in him, we become aware of what God desires. So those desires end up becoming our desires. Because we have an opinion of what we think is best for us, right? We have a very strong opinion of what we think is good for us. But how many of you, oh my gosh, don't do this. I did this the other day, so bad for my (laughs) self-esteem. I went on Facebook the other day and looked back at 2009 Oh man, do, do you know what? For like to humble yourself and to realize what I'm talking about in this illustration, go do that, go do that, go, go to 2009, right? And just when, when Facebook just started getting like cool, you know, Facebook just started to take off 2009, Zach Schellebarger is blank, right? And I would say the most idiotic things. I, I wanted to slap myself. I, I, oh my gosh. And if I were, okay, let's, let's picture this, guys. I want you to picture yourselves when you were, whatever, go, go to 16. If you're 16, go to yourself when you were four, whatever. Wait, just, just go back to a time where you knew you were foolish. You're still foolish, but when you were more foolish, right? Go back to a time, go back to a point in time and picture, picture this. This is really cool. Picture this, think about that you are God just for a moment. You right now are God and you have the ability to answer the prayers of your 16 year old self. How would you answer those prayers? Right? Some of the things that you prayed for, would you answer those prayers? Like, yes, heck no. There's some things I ask God for that if I were God looking at my 16 year old self, I'd say, heck no. Because I'm in the future, right? So is God. Does that, does that put things in perspective for us? When we're praying for God, when we pray to God for certain things? When you wholeheartedly believe that you need this and it's good for you and you, and you, will, you can't live without it or you need to be out of this situation, or you need to be in this situation, and you pray wholeheartedly for it, and God will answer no, and you wonder why, if there is a God, why is he so cruel? We ask those questions when we don't get what we want. But think about you. Back when you were so foolish, you're still foolish, like I said, but back when you were more foolish, you wouldn't answer those prayers either. Because you have this foreign, you, you already, you're in the future, you know the consequences of that. That's how we need to look at God when, we, when, when he may not answer things that we want him to. It means that sometimes what we believe to be good prayers may not be good prayers. Does that make sense? And I was seeking my dad, Pastor Brett, Seeking his counsel on what prayer is because, like I said, I really struggle with it. I I really struggle with the concept. And and I was asking him, are we supposed to pray over the sick? You know, if God wants them to be healed, isn't he just going to heal them, you know? Um, Are we supposed to pray over these types of things because isn't God just going to work regardless of what we request of him? And he essentially explained to me that the act of prayer is meant for encouragement and a reliance upon God's faithfulness. It's meant for encouragement and a reliance upon God's faithfulness. So if I am continually in prayer, and I'm continually aligning my heart with God's, when there are sick people that I know, because I've been aligning my heart with God's heart, I've been aligning my desires with his desires, when I know that God wholeheartedly wants that person to be healed and out of that situation, I'm going to pray that over them, and God will swiftly answer it. He'll either answer it now or in weeks to come. But if I'm also aligned with God's heart and I'm praying over someone and I know because I am in tap with God's desires that that person needs to be in that season, I'll pray that God would just simply give them strength as they're going through this trial. Does that make sense? That, that, that prayer first and foremost is in our closet it 's in our time with god as we're as we 're growing in relationship with him we 're discovering his desires. so when we do translate that into praying over other people, laying hands on the sick, praying for our nation, and things like this, we understand god 's desires, and we don 't just flippantly throw out prayers that that god isn 't going to even uh, heed right. There's still that question of why, though, sometimes when we really go through hard times. Still that question of why. Why wouldn't God just answer when we beckon him? Isn't it good for everyone to be healed just automatically? Why do people have to go through those struggles? Why doesn't God always answer right away when we're we're going through a hard time? Why doesn't he just pull us out right when we pray to him, right when we cry out to him? Sometimes I pray for the situation I am in to end. But it, in the moment, it, it doesn't happen. Why? And the same question, Jesus, for, Jesus knows our heart, right? Jesus knows our hearts. And, and he, he knows that this is a question that, that pops up in man's heart. So we said in Luke chapter 11, if you want to go there, Luke chapter 11. <clears throat> Luke chapter 11, verse 11, he says this. I'll take a moment for you guys to get there. Luke chapter 11, verse 11 through 13 says this, If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So, guys, it seems as though God may look like this, right? Because we'll ask him for what we believe to be, I don't know, an egg, right? As, as Jesus says, it it was a different time. I don't think any of us are praying for eggs, right? But if we ask God, our Heavenly Father, Lord, Father, I don't know how many of you asked your dads for eggs, right? Maybe in the morning, but like, Dad, can I have an egg? No, son, here's a scorpion, Right? This is, this is kind of, this is the logic father of mine. May I please have a fish? No, here's a venomous serpent, right? Like this, this is. And so, and so sometimes we view God like this because we ask him for what we believe to be good. Right. And, and we get in return something that we didn't necessarily ask for. And it seems as though God may be like this. Someone who gives me a scorpion. When I ask for an egg implying that he is either cruel or stupid. Right, that he is either cruel to give me a scorpion instead of an egg, or he doesn't know the difference between an egg and a scorpion. Right, And people tend to climb God into this. They either say God is a malicious God, or God is a God who is a fool. Or he doesn't exist. This is the argument. But then my question is, when, when I am asking for something that I believe to be good, do I measure good the way I'm supposed to? What is good? We're getting philosophical, right? What is good? Do we measure good based upon convenience and comfortability? Is that good? Is that truly what's good? If we're measuring what's good based upon our own convenience, our own comfortability, then yes, God is giving us all sorts of bad things. If that is our standard upon which we we elevate good, this is good. Do we measure good based on that? What's good in the moment? What's comfortable? What's affordable? What's doable? Is that how we measure good? And so, yes, if, if that is our egg, <laughs> if comfortability is our egg, then yes, uncomfortability is our scorpion. That's how we, if That's how we measure good. But if you measure good based on how God will be most glorified and our character most sanctified... It will change your perspective of good. And that's God's definition of good. God's definition is what gives, what makes him glorified and what makes us sanctified. What elevates his name and sanctifies our name is what God considers to be good. And so if we start forming our prayers around that definition of good, prayers will start being answered more. We'll stop praying for God to get us out of the situation. We'll start praying for God to make us faithful in the situation, so that we might learn things. I have another quote for you guys from A. W. Tozer. Like I said, you know, I'm, I'm not usually one to quote a lot of you know dudes outside of the Bible, but like I said, prayer is a huge struggle for me, so <laughs> I needed to consult men that are much more smart than I am, which is basically everyone. But they wrote they wrote books, so. Yeah, if you write a book, I'll probably use you too. A.W. Tozer said this, he said, The fallow, unplanted field is smug, content, protected from the shock of the plow and the agitation of the harrow, which is a hoe, essentially. Such a field as it lies year after year becomes a familiar landmark to the crow and to the blue jay. Safe and undisturbed, it sprawls lazily in the sunshine, the picture of sleepy contentment. But it is paying a terrible price for its tranquility. Never does it see the miracle of growth. Never does it feel the motions of mounting life, nor see the wonders of bursting seed, nor the beauty of ripening grain. Fruit it can never know because it is afraid of the plow. In direct opposition to this, the cultivated field has yielded itself to the adventure of living. Nature's wonders follow the plow. And so A.W. Tozer, he, he, he likens us to a field. A field that may look super peaceful and tranquil. Maybe it has a couple trees and blue jays and crows like to come and nest upon this field. It is sleepy, content, comfortable. The sun shines down on it and grass grows. But this field will never know the adventure of yielding fruit that people will be able to enjoy and be nourished by. It says nature's wonders follow the plow. You see, it's hard for us as fields. We don't want to be plowed because plowed means we are going to be beaten up a little bit. We're going to be shaken up. We're going to be told things that we don't want to hear. We're going to be told things that don't match up with the way we see life. And listen, if you're reading the Bible and it's never conflicting with your worldview, you're reading it wrong. Because, because guys, the fruitful life, the life that means something towards other people is the life that welcomes trials, that welcomes God. When he says, I'm going to send the plow your way. I'm going to send discipline your way. It's going to be painful. It's going to be hard, but I'm going to be here. I'm going to be here. I'm going to help you. And then I'm going to plant the seed after I plow. I'm going to plant the seed and amazing fruit and grain are going to grow up and you are going to feed so many people. Your life will be an adventure. If we interpret God's designs by through our desires, we will always be saying that he's giving us a scorpion instead of an egg. Prayer is forsaking our desires and yielding to God's. That's a scary thought sometimes, though, right? It's a scary thought. Saying, God, not my will, but your will be done is frightening because you're welcoming the plow in your life, right? You're welcoming the plow, and it's going to be painful sometimes. And you know what? That doesn't sell in church (laughs) Mega churches are built off of the basis that you're never going to go through struggles as long as you follow God. Pastor Mark and I love you far too much to preach that to you. We love you far too much to tell you that if you're going to live a life yielded to Jesus, it's going to be nothing but good and happy and healthy times. A life lived with Christ is a life being plowed by his will and yielding fruit so that the world around you may benefit from it and prayer is welcoming the plow. I've been recently going through struggles just with a couple brothers in Christ that man they love Jesus. They really do, but they're in disobedience right now. And I, I have, you know, I was I was on the phone with somebody who, you know, he he has he's just he's angry because there's a misunderstanding He's angry. He's hurt. He feels betrayed, and I called him to try to, to to to, to kind of reassure his heart that there's no maliciousness happening. It was all a misunderstanding, miscommunication. His anger and his and his emotions—they're all off base. We love him. We, you know, we we, you know, all of these things. But instead, it turned into a 35-40 minute phone call of him yelling, screaming, calling me things, accusing me, attacking my character as a brother and a mentor. That's what the phone call was and the entire time. I'm an alpha male, right? So I want to fight back, right? That's just my personality. I want to fight back. I want to lash back. I want to tell him what's up. But instead, I yielded, and I told him how much he's loved. Though he wouldn't receive it, I told him how much he's loved and how much he's appreciating, how much I, I appreciate his ministry and what he's doing. Then he hung up. And in that moment, I just prayed for his heart and prayed for mine. And it is this, guys, is what prayer is for. Prayers to say, Lord, I know that you love him. I know that you love him. I know that you, he, he is cherished by you. So help me to see him the way you see him. Because we'll always be giving into betrayal, we'll always be giving into miscommunication, we'll always be giving into the little tiny things or the big things that people do to us. But if we're being tapped into God's desires, who he is, we'll be praying, Lord, bless him. Some of the greatest trials that I've gone through have been resolved in me simply saying, Lord, bless them. And as we continually embrace God and what he has for us, and we're seeking a life that relies on him, we'll truly know what it means, as it says in 1 Thessalonians, to pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing doesn't mean you're always, in every five minutes, sitting down, bowing your head, praying, you know, the Lord's Prayer. That's not what praying without ceasing means. Guys, and the hipster movement has kind of just eradicated this whole thing, but listen, an artist is never consciously artistic, right? We we like to be consciously artistic now. But that's generally a, a sign that you're not right. When we have to post and show everyone and prove to everyone that we're artistic, right? When we when we have to show everyone how artistic we are, true artists don't do that. They're just artistic, and it's and and, and it, uh, their lives you know, as as they're pouring forth amazing poetry or paintings or books. That is the evidence of their artisticness, right? So an artist is never consciously artistic. Oh, I'm going to be artistic now. An artist is just, he does art. She does art. Yeah? And as a Christian, is never consciously, I, 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 I need to be praying. I need to tell people that I'm praying. I need to prove to people I'm praying. A, a, a Christian, a saint, it's just in continual prayer with the Lord. Continual communication. It doesn't have to be super deep prayers, but as situations arise and as you're continually going through life, just having a dialogue with God. Lord, help me through this. Lord, bless that person. God, this is happening right now. Help me understand it. Help me look at it through the lens of your gospel. All of these things is what it means to pray without ceasing. God's chosen mode of working in the hearts of man is through prayer prayer for ourselves and prayer for others. All throughout scripture, God heeds these, God listens to them, and God moves according to them. Prayer does have power. Prayer does have power when it's in accordance of who he is. In Exodus chapter 32, I'll be closing now. In Exodus chapter 32, it says, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, If you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, God, blot me out of your book, which you have written. So Moses is praying this. Moses is praying this and he's saying, Israel has sinned. They've done something terribly wrong. Don't harm them. Take me instead. That was Moses's prayer. Moses' prayer is like, Lord, you have every single right to destroy them right now. Israel, for all that they have done, you have, you have, you have redeemed them. You have brought them out of slavery and they returned that with seeking and worshiping other gods. You have every right to destroy them, but Lord, please take me instead. And God heeded the prayer of Moses. He said, I will not destroy them. God always heeds prayers that reflect his character and his desires. Lord, I know that you are God of redemption. Redeem them. Lord, they have this burden. They have this load. Lord, put it on me instead. And God will say, no, no, I won't put that load on you. I'll put it on me. I'll heed your prayer. Because you have reflected my heart in your prayer. I will heed that. Because God will never do anything outside his character. So if we're not praying in his character, those prayers aren't going to be answered. God will never do something according to your character or my character. He'll always do something according to him, his character. How many of you guys know Job? Job's life. I'll tell you a little bit about Job. Job Job was a super righteous man. An incredibly righteous man, a good man, a good father, a good husband. He was a rich man because he was a good businessman as well. He had everything and he loved the Lord so much. He was so upright. Next to Jesus, the Bible kind of describes him as one of the most perfect men. There's no sin that he committed that God would ever punish him for. And Satan came to God and he said, I bet if you took away all of his nice things, he wouldn't even care about you. And God says, go for it. God allowed that. And so what Satan began to do was take away everything bit by bit. Children died. Health went away. All of his wealth gone. He had boils all over his skin that he had to scrape off with pottery. Broken shards of pottery. His wife then said, and why don't you just curse God and die? On top of that, all of his friends came alongside him. and They said, you must have done something wrong for God to punish you like this. And all the while Job is praying and praying, God, why have you done this to me? God, why have you done this for me? Why God, 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 why have you done this to me? And he asked this for, for days and days and days and days. Job is just lamenting. God, I know that you're good. Why is this happening? I haven't done anything. I am, I'm blameless in your sight. I know that you're a good God. Why does, why does this have to happen? Why God? And he keeps asking why and why and why? And then God finally comes to Job and he says, who darkens my counsel without knowledge? Were you there when I established the foundations of the heavens? Were you there when I put Orion's belt in the sky? Do you uphold the sun's rising and the sun's setting? Do you know how an eagle can remain in the sky? Surely you know. Tell me, Job. Who are you to question my character and what I can and cannot do and what I can and cannot allow? Who are you? Were you there when I established the heavens? When you, were you there when I, be, when I started your little heart in your mother's womb? I'm the one who knitted you together, and now you're, you're wishing to die now. And God really lays into Job, and he humbles him. And this is the happy part, because that's really depressing, huh? Here's the happy part. Job 42 verse 10 says this. After all of this happened, Job said, I yield, I yield. All right, whatever. Do you, do whatever, do whatever you want to me. I'll still love you. I'll still worship you. And it says in verse 10, and the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then all of his brothers, all of his sisters, and those who had been his acquaintances before came to him and ate food with him in his house. And they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. Each one gave him a piece of silver and a ring of gold. Job's life was restored when he stopped praying, Why God? Why me? And it says, Job's losses, he, he, the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Wow. Prayer, I'll ask the worship team to come back up and. Prayer, guys, takes us out of ourselves. Job was so consumed with his own despair and his own trials that all of his prayers were centered around God. Why me? Why this? Why that? Why can't you take me out of this? Lord, I just want to die right now. And God finally restored Job when he started praying for his friends instead. Bless them. Lord, I know that my Redeemer lives. You are are good. Bless my friends. And prayer is meant to to humble ourselves before God, to commune with him in a way where we sacrifice our desires for the sake of God's desires and watch him not only redeem our lives, because do you know what? If it were up to us, God would just redeem us. If it were up to us, God would just answer all of our prayers, but God's not just about you. He's about everybody, right? And so God will heed the prayers that not only restore you, but restore others. And in order for others to be restored and ministered to, sometimes it takes the plow. It takes trials. It takes these things. But we pray in the midst of them. Amen? And so now we're going to take communion here. And here we have the juice and the bread. And it's to remember this. It's to remember this, guys. Yeah, we we go through suffering sometimes. We go through hardship sometimes. But we need to recognize that Christ suffered on our behalf. That his body was broken first and his blood was shed first. That all the trials we go through, they're not without purpose. They're not without meaning. All the struggles we go through, they're not without value. Death has no sting over you. Trials have no power over you anymore. Every single thing. That's a purpose to strengthen you. Because God was broken for you so that you wouldn't have to be broken. That God's blood was shed so your blood wouldn't have to be shed. And when He died, He killed all of your sins with Him. And He decided that you, you now can wear His righteousness because He's taken away your sin. And so as we pray and as we worship, we worship as those who have been redeemed. We worship as those that are righteous. We raise up holy hands. And, guys, worship is prayer also. We need to realize that, that these words aren't just pretty words to kind of uh, tickle your emotions. They're prayers that we pray to God. And when we lift our hands, this is what the posture of lifting our hands means it means, God, I surrender. That's the universal symbol. Since the beginning of history, universal symbol of surrender. Raising your hands. I surrender. It's not my will, it's your will now. And so the words that I sing, they're all in a posture of not my will, your will be done. You are good. I am not. But thank you, Lord, for redeeming me and giving me a life that is able to live, truly live for God and for others. Amen? Lord, thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for being holy when I'm not holy. Thank you for being faithful when I'm not faithful, faithful, Lord. I just want to give all thanksgiving to you, Lord. And I want this time of worship for me and for everyone in here to be an intimate time. A time where we worship you. A time where we give you all the glory and all the praise and where we sacrifice ourselves. Where we say, Lord, not in my life, my desires, that's, that's, no longer, that's no longer what needs to be here, God. But your desires, your will, all of that be done in my life. So, Lord, we surrender tonight as we take communion, as we worship you, as we sing these songs. We surrender, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.